Let's pray. God, you are a great and mighty, wonderful, loving, gracious God. We come to you in this time to, to receive your word, to delve into your word, to be blessed by your word, to be transformed. Lord, come, be with us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So we have passed the halfway mark in the book of Acts. It is 28 chapters long. We are now in chapter 15. Nathan, last Sunday, was able to give us an overview, I think not just of the first 14 chapters, but I think he even talked about the other chapters as well as we move forward into that. And so we continue to to remember our theme verse, which gives us an understanding of the book, that the book is really about the disciples coming forth and being witnesses and the spread of the Christian Church, all those who are Christ followers, making more and more Christ followers. So let's say it together. But you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A couple weeks ago, I told you about my favorite comic strip. Does anyone remember what my favorite comic strip is? Calvin and Hobbes is my favorite comic strip, and I told you that I have the full anthology of Calvin. Someone gave gave it to me, and uh, hardback, I even showed it to Jules the other day. She was quite impressed with my anthology um, of Calvin and Hobbes. It's pretty pretty wonderful. So I wanted to show you another uh, Calvin and Hobbes today. Calvin, if you don't know Calvin and Hobbes, Calvin is this precocious six-year-old boy, And he has some very interesting perspectives on things. And he has this stuffed tiger named Hobbes that he believes is real. And so in the comic strips, he has all these conversations with Hobbes. Hobbes is actually not in this particular comic strip. It's just Calvin and his dad. And so let me read it for you. Calvin walks up to his dad. His dad's reading the paper. And he says, I hate school. Then he says, each day I count the hours until school is over. Then I count the days until the weekend. Then I count the weeks until the month is over. And then the months until summer. I always have to postpone what I want to do for what I have to do. And then his dad says, welcome to the world. And Calvin in the last frame, and here's his interesting perspective. Would you sign this parental excuse to get me out of the next 11 and a half years of school? I'm sure there's some of you students out there saying, amen to that, right? (laughs) But how often in our life do we think that we have to do the things we have to do, and that keeps us from doing the things we want to do, and therefore we think, oh, I'm losing all the joy in my life. I'm not having fun. I'm not experiencing what I want in life because I have to do all these things that I don't want to do. God created us to live in a certain way, and I want us to understand, I want us to have the perspective this morning of living in a way that is honoring to God, making the most of life, and a joyful, filled life. That's what I hope that we have this morning. So, we start with Genesis uh, 17, 9 to 11, and when you see yellow, please read with me when you see the yellow. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And read with me. You are to undergo circumcision, 
and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. So circumcision was a sign that someone was in covenant with God. Okay? They did that as a faithful response to say, I am in covenant with God, I am part of the covenant family, and so therefore we are circumcising our males as a sign of this covenant, and everybody is saying we are part of this covenant with God, making it a commitment. It is a sign of the covenant with God. It's something that God established with Abraham for God's people. Abraham was the patriarch or the father or the leader of the Israelites, and it was established from God to the people. And of course, you know a covenant takes two people, so it was from God, and then the people had to respond to make it a, a viable covenant. Okay, there was a response back. It was something that was done in the Old Testament, but when it came to the New Testament, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they turned it into a burden, and they created all these laws that went along, not with just circumcision, but with other things. And they made all these rules for the people, turning the law and circumcision into this great burden. Now, Jesus came, and he made a new covenant, a covenant where circumcision was no longer needed. It was an outward circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. This new covenant was, was placing your faith in Jesus Christ, making that commitment to Jesus Christ. Part, part of it was being baptized and bring, being, being brought into the family of God and making that commitment, that sign, that connection with God through Jesus Christ. Yet when the Gentiles began to believe, many of the Jews decided that circumcision was needed for them to believe, right? You have all these Jews, they've been circumcised, they've come through the law, now all these Gentiles are believing, and they're like, well, what do we do with them? Oh, we need them to get circumcised, right? That's what we did, that's, that's the sign of the covenant, right? And so they were making, or trying to make the Gentiles get circumcised so that they can be part of this covenant family, right? So this is the issue that we were dealing with, we're dealing with in Acts chapter 15. First, we need to understand that circumcision didn't even save them in the Old Testament. As I said before, it was a sign of, of being in that covenant, being in that commitment, but it wasn't circumcision that saved the people. It was not salvific. It was just a sign that showed that you were making a commitment, that you were in covenant with God. Even in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. Romans 4, 1 to 3. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believed God, and it was credited. It's through his faith that he was saved, not by his circumcision. And so... We are not saved by circumcision. We are not saved by the law. So if we're not saved by those things, what, how are we saved? See, the Bible, we all know, right, is full of verses that tell us how we are saved. One of the best verses, one of the most known verses is John 3.16. For all who believe in Jesus are saved, right? For God sent the world so that we would have that eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. As I read in the children's sermon, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And in Romans 10.9, read it with me. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
very clear verse. If you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is what you do. You declare that Jesus is Lord, that he is your Savior, right, the one who saves you, that he is your Lord, the one who rules over you, that, that guides your life. You acknowledge that Jesus was indeed crucified on the cross for the sacrifice of our sins, that God was indeed raised from the dead, the resurrection is true, that he is sitting at the right hand of God and the Father in heaven, and that we will be saved through the name of Jesus Christ. That's very straightforward. And so here, when we get to the situation in Acts 15, we have Paul and Barnabas who have been going around, right, preaching to the Gentiles. Gentiles are, become, are becoming saved. There's this argument about circumcision, and so now they, Paul and Barnabas come back to where the Jerusalem Council is, and they have this big discussion about what are we going to do with the Gentiles, right? What are we going to do with the Gentiles? See, we see that the followers of Christ still belong. There's some who still belonged to the Pharisees. There's a really interesting a note here in Acts 15. They still were connected to the Pharisaical body, to the religious leader body. And they were still, because of this, tied to the law. They were still holding on to the law as though it saved them. And they believed, as I said before, that the, the Gentiles had to follow the law, had to get circumcised, had to be like the Jews so that they too could be saved. Because the Pharisees had been so demanding and influential for so long, what the Pharisees believed still had sway over some of the Christian leaders. So Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and James come to this council, and they are going to speak to the council. When I was uh, in uh, uh, my former church, we belonged to Los Ranchos Presbytery in Orange County. And when we had our presbyterian meetings, every once in a while there would be an issue that would arise that would be a controversial issue. And so whenever you had a controversial issue, there was a system that, that we had. So what we would do, we'd set aside about 20, 25 minutes to talk about this controversial issue. And then you would gather some people that were for the issue and they would speak, and some people that were against the issue and they would speak, and each person had about two minutes to speak. There would be microphones set up, and it was very orderly, right? Very Presbyterian. We were orderly, and you walk up to the microphone, you speak for two minutes, and then the next person goes. And what was interesting is that the, the foreside always got their heavy hitters, right? Always got their most influential speakers. And the against side, what did they do? Same thing, right? They got their heavy hitters. They got the, and so these people who spoke in very influential ways, they were the ones that went to the microphone to try to sway the other side. To their side. Well, this is what we see happening at Jerusalem Council. I mean, think about it. You got Peter, who's the rock, the, the head of the, the church, right? You got Paul and Barnabas and James. These are the people that are speaking at the council. And we have what Peter says. He says, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, what? God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. Remember a few chapters ago, Peter had the dream, went to Cornelius in his house. He was changed in his thinking about Gentiles. He preached the gospel and he saw them believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. So when he preached to Cornelius, not only were they saved, but he saw the Holy Spirit come upon them. And read with me. He did not discriminate between us and them, 
for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. See, the first point that Peter makes here is that God has chosen the Gentiles to hear the gospel. This is important because so many believed that only the Jews were supposed to be saved. And they had this, this idea that the Gentiles couldn't be saved. And Peter's saying, no, God has said it so that the Gentiles can be saved as well. Second, God purified the hearts of the Gentiles. This is important because the Jews looked at the Gentiles as lowly and dirty people, but God purified their hearts as well. Third, Peter talks about how the law and circumcision was a great burden to bear, and that burden should not be continued onto the Gentiles. And fourth, and most important, it is by grace that people are saved. The Gentiles are saved by grace through faith, not by the law. What a great argument. Well, next, Paul and Barnabas speak, and they're very influential people, very influential speakers, people who had gone out from, from place to place speaking to the Gentiles, seeing the Gentiles believe, seeing the signs and the wonders of God put on to the Gentiles. And basically what they were saying to the people is if God put his signs and wonders and was working those in the lives of the Gentiles, then that must, they must be okay. They must be worthy of being saved. God wouldn't do that for anyone that he wasn't going to save. And so that was their argument. And last, we have James. James builds on what Peter says when he says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. See, James understood that if they put all these rules and regulations and all these requirements on the Gentiles, then they wouldn't want to believe. They would say, wait a minute, I thought this was about Jesus. What is about all these other rules and regulations and all these practices? And, and this is all the Jewish stuff that you guys do. Why do we have to do all that? I thought it was about Jesus. And they were putting this burden, and they were going to push them away by adding all these other things. They shouldn't put requirements on to the Gentiles. And I was at my former church, and we were beginning to think about leaving the PCUSA denomination. Um, the executive, the city executive from ECO, um, our, our new um, denomination, uh, came to speak at our church. We had a town hall meeting. We we're going to have this one last meeting. It was going to be the final meeting before we were going to take a vote and make a decision whether or not we were going to leave. The denomination. And so Dana came and he brought a couple staff members with him. And when he came, we were wondering, okay, is Dana going to, you know, put all these rules and regulations on us? Is he going to say, this is what you need to do to get into ECO and try to, you know, help us understand these are all the things, you know, you need to check all these boxes and then you can come into ECO. Well, an interesting note is Dana used to be a, the former pastor of Christ Presbyterian Lakewood. And a friend of everybody's, right? He knew many, many people in the congregation. And so when he came, he didn't come with all these rules and regulations. He came with his heart of encouragement. He said, I know this is a big decision. I know this is challenging, leaving one denomination, going to another denomination. You guys have to make this vote. And he gave us words of encouragement 
an understanding of the decision that we were going to have to make. The Gentiles were, were challenged enough, leaving their pagan way of life behind them and moving forward into a life with Christ, a life that honors Christ, a life that is faithful to Christ. They didn't need all these rules and regulations. They didn't need circumcision to follow Jesus. And Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas were showing the council that this was indeed the case. And so the council heard the words, and they agreed with them and said, you're right, we need to not put this on them. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas and a few others to the Gentiles. And so we read in 24 to 26, start with me. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So they acknowledged right away, we know that people are becoming you, telling you things that they think are true, things that you're supposed to do, and they've been burdening in you. They did not have the authority to do that. We are here as the authority to let you know that's not true. You don't have to worry about that. Just follow Jesus. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Lord, the Lord Jesus. Now you can imagine that Paul and Barnabas were friends. And so when they came, Paul and Barnabas had risked their life to preach the gospel to them, to tell them about Jesus, to tell them about God's grace. And when they saw Paul and Barnabas, they were, they were feeling good, right? They're like, oh, yes. We know Paul and Barnabas. We know what they have preached to us. We know that they have told what they have told us. And they have risked their lives. They love us deeply, and they want us to understand the love of God. We don't want to go there yet. So anyway, um, I gave you a little preview there, right? So there's a story, a true story, of a, a composer, musician, pianist. His name was Jan Paderewski. And Paderewski, and um, he was going to play at this American concert hall one, one day, one night. And it was a big gala event, and people were dressed up, and they were excited to come and hear this master play. And one mom had brought her 10-year-old boy, hoping that if he could just see him play, he would be so amazed by his performance that the little boy would want to practice more and want to be just like him, want to be a great pianist. Well, the boy didn't want to come, but the mom dragged him there anyway because she, was, she was, knew that this was going to be the case, right? He was going to hear Paderewski, and, and he was going to want to play the piano. So it was a few minutes before the concert was to start, and the mom, for a moment, turned to talk to some, her neighbor right next to her, and the boy said, this is my chance. And so he snuck out, and he made his way up to the stage. And he sat down on the piano, and he started to play chopsticks. And of course, all the buzzing of the people talking immediately stopped, and everybody turned and looked at the stage, and they started yelling out, get that boy off the stage. Who let him up there in there? Who brought somebody, a boy so young? Why are they letting him roam around? You know, and they start yelling all these things at the boy, and he's just playing chopsticks, right? Well, Paderewski heard what was going on, and he surmised really quickly what was going on, so he put on his coat, and he made his way out to the stage, and he put his arms around the boy, and he started to play this counter melody to chopsticks. And as he was playing, he was whispering in the boy's ear, don't stop. Don't quit. Keep going. Don't quit. And together they played 
for a while. Now, I got to tell you, I think that that would have encouraged the boy to play the piano even more than sitting in the audience and watching Paderewski play. Paderewski showed him great grace, didn't he? Great love. He could have come out and said, what are you doing on my piano? What are you doing? Right? He could have gone, get off my stage. This is my, right? He's a master. He could have done that. He showed him grace, and he showed him love. Had the council tried to put this burden of circumcision onto the Gentiles, it would have been the same kind of thing as yelling at the little boy and telling him to get off the stage. But instead, Barnabas and Paul came with the love and the grace of God, saying, God loves you. God wants good for you. Don't stop. Don't quit. Follow Jesus. It is worth it. God loves you greatly. And what a difference that made for them. As we talked a couple weeks ago about the grace of God, we learned that God's grace is about him giving his blessings to us, even though we don't deserve them. He gives us forgiveness and salvation. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and he gives us gifts to do great things. And he gives us his love, poured out his love for us. And then he calls us to share the grace of God and the message of grace with others. Well, we get to the end of the the chapter. And at the end of the chapter, we see that Paul and Barnabas have a little conflict with each other. And so let's read here what happens. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Read with me. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Now, if you never read this verse before, this might surprise you. There is conflict between Paul and Barnabas. See, the situation is they're saying, let's go. We're going to retrace our steps. We're going to go back to all the, all the places we preached, the churches we've been setting up. Remember, the, they've been setting up leaders and churches. We're going to go back and we're going to encourage them and talk to them more and see how they're doing. Now, John Mark is a relative of Barnabas, and he says, oh, yeah, well, let's bring John Mark. And Paul says, no, because John Mark was with them in Pamphylia, and in the midst of their mission, he thought it was too difficult, and so he left them. He deserted them, and that really upset Paul. And Paul thought, you know, doing mission work is too great without wondering if everyone is really committed to the mission at hand. I don't want to have to worry about John Mark why I'm focusing on what I'm trying to do. And so Paul was like, no, I don't trust him. I don't want him along. And Barnabas was like, yeah, but we need to give him a second chance. He'll do better this time. And in the end, the disagreement was so great that they parted ways and they went on different journeys. They say that, uh, well, um, one thing I also want to say was uh, it shows that conflicts happen, even between great leaders of Christ, right? Even strong Christians can be in conflict with one another. Now, they say that hindsight is a 2020, right? Because in the end, John Mark proved himself and was a faithful follower of Christ, was a great servant of Christ, and did great ministry. And even in the end, Paul acknowledged this too. In 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, He is helpful to me. In my ministry. And in the end, 
John, Mark, and Paul did some ministry together, and Paul and Barnabas were able to resolve their conflict with one another. See, conflict happens in church life. It happens with Christians. It happens when we're working together in the ministry. Conflict will happen. It's part of life. I mean, we just have different opinions, different agreement, uh, different thoughts, right? Conflict's going to happen. But what God doesn't want to happen is for us not to seek to resolve that conflict. God wants us to live in unity with one another. He wants us to resolve the conflicts we might have with one another. It is not helpful for the body of Christ or for the work of Christ for conflict to exist amongst Christians and amongst Christian leaders. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 23 to 24, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, or you could probably even add that you have something against your brother or sister, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and read with me, First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Now, sometimes it's impossible to resolve. I mean, the other person doesn't want to resolve the conflict. You know, Paul said, as much as it depends on you, live in peace with one another. So sometimes the other person won't let you resolve the conflict with you. But as much as it depends on you, you need to go and reconcile. God doesn't want us to come with him with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. I mean, we need to honestly be able to say, God, I did everything I could, and if that person gives me another chance, I will resolve the conflict with them. I want to show the grace and the love. It's still about the grace and love of God that we're already talking about. I want to show that to them because I want to be in unity with them because you love us and you want us to be loving one another. So God doesn't even want you to come and make an offering if you haven't tried to, to resolve the conflict. Why? Because that's going to be in your heart. That's going to be in your mind. You're not going to be able to fully receive the word of God. You're not going to be able to fully walk in, in the relationship with Christ if you have conflict, if you have bitterness, if you have anger, if you have unforgiveness in your heart. So I want to emphasize, as I did two weeks ago, that we are saved by grace through faith. And as we are saved by grace it's important for us to share this message of grace with others, to let them know that God loves you. God has grace for you. God will forgive you. God wants to, to take away your sin. God wants to take away your burdens. God wants to lead you into the future, the life that he has created for you. God wants to do these things for you. This is the message of grace we have to offer to others. What an amazing, wonderful message. They say that we should not just witness by our words, that we should witness by our actions, right? So it shouldn't be just our words that we're saying. We should be able to show grace to others. Our lifestyle, the way we care for others, the way we forgive others, the way we seek to reach out to others who are hurting and in pain, we show the grace of God. We show it through our words, and we show it through our actions. And then when people see that, they will be more open to receiving Jesus and knowing Jesus. Let's pray.